Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. Our very special guest this week is Rob Alot. He's an environmental attorney from Ohio. He's the author of Poisoned Water, Corporate Greed, and One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont. He's also the inspiration for the movie Dark Waters, starring Mark Ruffalo, which is in theaters right now. Uh, throughout this podcast, Rob kind of gives us the background of, of how he got introduced to PFAA and PFOS and gives us some details about his fight with these chemical companies and how these chemicals are affecting everybody in the world. I mean, every one of us has these chemicals in our blood. And uh, he also touches on, as firefighters, the fact that we get exposed to this stuff at even a higher level because of the foam and the gear. So with that being said, here's my interview with Rob. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. As I said earlier, uh, today I got my special guest, Rob Balot. I'm actually uh, with him live in person in Kentucky. So first of all, thank you for joining me on our podcast today. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be able to do it. So we've got uh, a pretty lengthy issue to talk about. I mean, I, I just said a minute ago, I mean, you literally wrote a book about it. So trying to consolidate this into a podcast and and hit the high points is going to be a challenge. Um, this is obviously for the fire service, um, but uh, in order to, and, and we'll touch on that later on, but I, I want to give kind of a background of really how all this came to light in your story, and then we'll get to, you know, some firefighter-specific stuff later on. Sure. So I guess this really started back in 1998 for you. You got, you got a phone call, right? Right. I um, got a phone call in my office. A gentleman on the other end of the line was um, rattling off issues he was having with cows dying on his property. Uh, I had no idea why he was calling me. And then he mentioned my grandmother's name, that he'd gotten my name from my grandmother. And he had been looking for a lawyer, somebody that could help him figure out what was going on with his cows. Uh, and this involved um, a landfill owned by the DuPont Company. And this uh, gentleman, whose name was Wilbur Tennant, uh, said that he could see white foaming water coming out of this landfill into the creek that his cows were drinking from. He had gone to the state EPA, he had gone to the federal EPA, he had gone to the company, he had gone to folks locally, he really couldn't get anybody to help him or talk to him. So he was looking for a lawyer um, and uh, had to go look outside of the local area in Parkersburg for, to try to find somebody who could help him. and. His neighbor had just been on the phone with my grandmother, who said her grandson was a lawyer up in Cincinnati. Surely he could help. But at that point, I was actually had spent the last eight years helping our chemical company clients uh, comply with the environmental laws. But we agreed, after I heard it was from my grandmother, to come on up, take a look at what you've got, see if we can help you. That was 1998. So uh, Mr. Tennant is desperate to the point where he just needs a lawyer. Right. And he doesn't even care if you're on the other side. He's just looking for an end for somebody to actually hear him out. Exactly. He wanted somebody who would at least sit down and take a look at all the videotapes. You know, these were the days of VCRs, and uh, he had been camcording, taking video of what he was seeing at the property with not only his cows getting sick and dying, but dead deer, dead wildlife in the area. He had photographs. He wanted somebody to, to sit down and look at what he had. You know, he felt 
really strongly that if somebody just looked at it, it would be obvious that there was a problem, something ought to be done. And we did. We, we took a look at his videos and, and his uh, photographs, and he was right. I mean, it was obvious looking at that, inf that, that, that video and those photos. Something very seriously wrong was happening there, and we thought that was something we could help him on should be fairly straightforward. We just pull the permits for this landfill, figure out what kind of regulated, listed, hazardous materials were there, and probably something was being emitted too high. We would get to the bottom of it pretty quickly and be able to help them out. And it turned out to be a lot more complicated than that. A little bit, it sounds like. Um, you know, this was, you just made partner a little bit before that, and this was, correct me if I'm wrong, your, your first case, your own baby to start with. Correct. This was the first case that I was bringing in as a new partner to the firm. Uh, but, you know, this was somebody that was coming from a family recommendation. And again, something I thought, you know, this is what I could do. I, I, I knew how the permitting world worked. I knew what the hazardous listed materials were. And um, I thought this was something pretty straightforward. We could help him on pretty quickly. When you, when you got all the permits and you got all the records, and you started to really look through them and, and you kind of noticed there's nothing here that adds up. Something, something is missing. Everything that I'm looking at wouldn't cause these cows to act this way. Exactly right. You know, we pulled all of the permits. We, we requested all the documents from the state of West Virginia, um, even from the company about their permits and nothing was jumping out on the list of all of the things that were being regulated and monitored for at that landfill. None of it was explaining what we were seeing in those animals. None of it would explain um, the white foam. Uh, so we, I started realizing it had to be something beyond what was on those permits and what was being regulated at the landfill. So when you kind of had the aha moment that there's there's something else here what was the process like to to get all those files and get all that information and then you know be able to act on that information once you received it and were able to analyze it you know it was uh one day i was i was going through all of these documents and this is the days before electronic discovery and before things started being done on disks and over the computer. These were just good old hard copy files. I was wading through all of those documents, boxes and boxes of documents, and stumbled on a, on a letter that referenced this chemical called PFOA. Uh, I'd never heard of it, and I went to my list of regulated listed chemicals. It wasn't on the list. So I started asking the company, DuPont, who owned the landfill, for information about this chemical. What is this stuff? Uh, I'm not finding anything out there about it but there's a reference here that this stuff's going into this landfill. Uh, we had to go get a court order. We had to fight with the company to get those documents turned over. Um, and then we got another big dump of documents, finally, once the court ordered all of the records on this PFOA chemical to be turned over. And that took me quite some time to start going through all of those records and try to piece together what this PFOA chemical was. Once you found out what this, this chemical was and, and what it does, what was, what was kind of your follow-up to all that information? Like, What was the next step? Well, it was pretty disturbing once I started going through the documents and reading about 
what PFOA was and what was known about it. And what we saw was it was a chemical that DuPont had been using since 1951. They had been buying it by the from the 3M company who invented it right after World War II. It had been shipping it to DuPont to use in the making of Teflon materials at their plant in Parkersburg. Um, and even though uh, this was decades before the US EPA existed, before there were federal regulations about putting chemicals out on the market, DuPont had been using a lot of this material in the making of Teflon and emitting lots of it out into the air, into the water, disposing of sludges into unlined pits at the factory where it seeped into the ground. Um, and what we really saw when I started digging through the files, it was not only you know, was there a lot of it being used, it was extremely toxic. The company had done all kinds of tests showing toxicity to various different animals. They had found out that it caused cancer in rats by the 1980s, testicular tumors. Um, and most disturbing, they went out and started sampling for it in the water supplies of the surrounding community in the early 80s and found it in the drinking water. Um, above levels, their own scientists were saying were the appropriate levels. Even though it wasn't regulated, the state and the EPA didn't know about the chemical, DuPont scientists were concerned enough about it that they set their own guideline. No more than one part per billion in drinking water. And what we were seeing, there were levels of that chemical two to five times that level in the local drinking water, but nobody had been told. So I'm looking at all this data and realizing we've got a toxic carcinogenic chemical in the drinking water of this entire community. It's been there since the 80s. Nobody's been told. The regulators haven't been told. What do we do? So I sat down realizing this was a public health threat, put together a letter, and attached all that information and sent it to the US EPA, the Department of Justice, every agency I could think of. That was March 6 of 2001 hoping that they would jump in and then begin regulating this and taking steps to protect people from it. And this wasn't just a letter, like a regular stamp letter that you're sending in an envelope. How, how much did this, <laughs> this letter weigh? Uh, I believe it was about, I want to say several pounds. Uh, when you added all the exhibits, there were about 130 or so documents attached. Because again, like Mr. Tennant, I believed if somebody would sit down and just look at the facts and the evidence. This was pretty obvious, pretty clear. There was a problem. It was in drinking water. It was above the, the company's recommended guideline. Something needed to be done. It, and again, that was 2001. It was at this point you realize it's not just about the cows. Correct. What we had seen was when DuPont realized it was in the drinking water, and back in the 80s and 90s, they had dug up 7,000 tons of PFOA-soaked sludges and taken it and dumped it. And where, where had they dumped it? The landfill next to Mr. Tennant's property. And what does it do when it gets out into the water? It foams. So I realized, I thought I had figured out what was happening to Mr. Tennant's cattle. So we settled his case in 2001. But at that point, we realized this was far beyond Mr. Tennant and his property. This was in the drinking water of everyone in that community. It had been there for decades. They hadn't been told. The regulators weren't aware. And what we were seeing, too, was it was likely in the blood of Americans all across the country as well, yet nobody seemed to be aware of it. So that kind of, I mean, at that point, 
with Mr. Tennant, and you're closing that chapter one. And you're opening up to chapter two, which is now a class action for all those citizens in that Parksburg, West Virginia area. Uh, now this chapter obviously is gonna get even bigger. Um, what, what ended up happening uh, in that in that second case, the the class action, the uh, the Kiger case. Yeah, yeah. Once the community finally learned that this was in their water, um, after we brought that information out to the public, they came to us, asked us to help them get it out of the water, and most importantly, they wanted to know what's this going to do to us drinking it for a long in the long term. Uh, if it has these um, cancer effects in rats, what's it going to do to people? Um, and what we'd been seeing in the workers is workers had increased cancer rates. Workers were suffering various problems. But the company, DuPont, was saying that those people have been exposed at such extremely high levels, we don't know that those effects would happen to people drinking it at, at these levels in the community. So we brought that class action in 2001, spent years fighting, litigating that, and in 2004 we ended up settling that with DuPont and part of that settlement was everybody got clean water, they got filtration systems, but most importantly, we set up an independent panel of scientists, jointly selected by DuPont and by us. These had to be people that were completely independent of either side, and their task was to look at all of the information about this chemical, not just what was published, but what was also in the internal files, and study the community that had been exposed and look at all that data and determine what does this chemical actually do to people who are exposed to it for the long term. And those scientists would independently make that determination. We also got money from the settlement, but rather than just hand that out to everybody, we used that money to pay people to have their blood tested for the chemical and provide medical information. We had 69,000 people from West Virginia and Ohio participate in that study. All that data was turned over to these independent scientists. They then spent seven years studying all of that, doing massive health studies, some of the most comprehensive human health studies ever done on any chemical. And by 2012, that independent panel had confirmed drinking PFOA was linked with six diseases, including testicular cancer, the same thing we had seen in the animal studies decades earlier, kidney cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, preeclampsia, and high cholesterol. Those findings came out in 2012. Everybody in the community then was entitled to medical monitoring and testing for those diseases, and people who had one of those diseases in that community were then allowed to move forward and seek damages um, for those diseases. We had about 3,500 people who had one of those six diseases that moved forward with cases. There's a, wow, there's a lot to go over there. <laughs> how, let me even go back just a little bit. How important was it to get that independent C8 panel? Because um, even going back to Mr. Tennant's case, there was that the the cattle study got done, uh, and it was, you know, done by Dupont, and I think the EPA was part right. of that as well. And that outcome was, I mean, you can kind of see how it was influenced. What what was the outcome of of the of the cattle? 
The cattle study ended up being uh, right at the beginning of the case. DuPont had gone to the US EPA and said that they would look into what was killing the cows. They had three DuPonts uh, veterinarians, three EPA veterinarians, and this was supposed to be uh, a scientific panel of um, experts who would determine what was killing the cows. Um, unfortunately, um, they failed to even test the cows for this chemical, even though the DuPont folks on the panel were well aware that the chemical was in the landfill, they were aware it was in the water, and the cows were never even tested for PFOA. And, it, and by the time we figured out PFOA was the problem at the landfill, most of these cows, if not all of them, were dead. Um, so when it came time to sit down and try to resolve this issue of what will these chemicals actually do to people drinking it? Both sides wanted to make sure this was done by independent scientists, not influenced by either side. A fair... Just Correct. Oh. Not DuPont scientists on the panel, not plaintiff lawyer experts on the panel. These needed to be independent scientists. And that's why this study was so unique. This really had never been done before to give independent scientists like this all of this data, all of the, DuPont had to pay whatever it was going to cost to do these studies. So these ended up being some of the most comprehensive studies ever done by independent scientists who then confirmed what this chemical did to people who were exposed to it over time. And those findings have been critically important for our understanding of not only PFOA, but some of the related uh, chemicals that we now hear referred to as PFAS, P-F-A-S, these forever chemicals. PFOA is just one of that class of chemicals, and there are many in that class, including some that have been brought out as safe replacements after PFOA was finally phased out. Many of these are being found to have s the same toxicity concerns as PFOA. So this health study that was done in West Virginia and Ohio has been critically important in understanding all of these chemicals and what they may do to people. You also mentioned that that study took seven years to put together. Those had to be the seven longest years of your life, just waiting, just every day. When is this going to come through? When are you going to have answers? Not only for you, but for these 70,000 individuals who, who are just waiting and wanting to know what's going on. Yeah, when we set this process up, again, nobody had really done this before. So nobody knew how long this was going to take. And we had no idea, frankly, that we would have so many people participating as well, the 69,000 people. And having all their blood samples, all their medical information, having all that turned over to these scientists was a huge amount of data. Um, and it ended up taking a long time to do all of the studies that the panel thought needed to be done in order to come up with data and conclusions that nobody could criticize, nobody could challenge about whether it was done correctly. So that took a long time. And in the meantime, people in that community were getting sick, were dying. You see that in the movie, Dark Waters. You know, I describe a lot of that in the book as well, exposure. You know, just what this community had to endure waiting through that time, those seven years. And that's one of the reasons why you know, I'm happy to see this information finally coming out so that now that other people are realizing they've been exposed, people hopefully won't have to go through that same long wait to understand what this stuff does to them 
we can use the information we've gathered, we can move on from what we already know and take steps now to try to protect people. And you've realized, uh, you know, that was your first class action regarding this. But you kind of realize over time, this, this is in everybody's blood. Everybody is exposed to these chemicals, whether it's through, you know, uh, Teflon or the water or, um, you know, all these different water repellents, uh, clothing and um, carpets and so on and so on and so forth. I mean, they're all over the place. There's so many different um, ways these chemicals are used. Yeah, I mean, the, we found out about it through the exposures occurring around the DuPont plant in West Virginia that was manufacturing Teflon materials. But PFOA and a re very closely related chemical called PFOS, also manufactured by 3M, um, those, those chemicals, which have eight carbons, also called C8s, they have been used in a huge variety of consumer products over the years not just Teflon materials, but things like stain-resistant clothing, carpeting, uh, fast food wrappers, packaging, wire cabling, microwave popcorn bags, you name it. And also um, things like firefighting foams um, and you know, uh, coatings used to protect clothing or waterproof your shoes. So, I mean, these, these chemicals have been used in a huge array of, of consumer products. And they haven't just been used at the manufacturing site down in West Virginia or the 3M plant out in Minnesota. This stuff has been sent all across the country to different companies that have used it in, in, in their own manufacturing processes, released it, put it onto consumer products, sent to landfills, you name it. So we're, we're talking about chemicals that have managed to get out into our environment over the last 50, 60 years in a, in a huge array of different ways. And once, unfortunately, they're out in the environment, they are almost impossible to break down. They, they stay out there um, and don't break down under biological conditions. That's why you hear them referred to as forever chemicals. Um, they will be out there for millions of years unless physically removed. Not only do they get out in the environment and stay there forever, they have a tendency to get into people. You know, I mentioned that they were, they were found in human blood. These chemicals, the C8s, PFOA and PFOS, have a tendency to get in humans, get into our blood, where they then stay, build up over time. Even the smallest exposures can build up to higher levels over time. And they circulate throughout our bodies, particularly the blood-rich organs over, over time. And that's why the scientists, the regula regulators that are looking at it are particularly concerned about these chemicals because not only are they toxic, but they have this really high persistence and bioaccumulation potential. They get in us, they stay in us, and it's almost like you have this ticking time bomb um, in, your, in your body, in your blood. And we now realize it's not just you know, the C8s, the PFOA and PFOS, but um, uh, there's a variety of these related PFOS chemicals that can also get, on, get in us and stay in our environment as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, C8 is no longer being manufactured. Yeah, 3M actually um, stopped manufacturing C8s, PFOA and PFOS, back in the year 2000. DuPont, however, jumped into the market, 
and started making PFOA around 2002 and continued making it until it finally phased it out around 2013. Um, they were, after being sued by the EPA, after the information came out from our lawsuit about the toxic effects of the chemicals, DuPont finally announced a phase out of the chemical in 2006, although it was going to be over the next 10 years. And what was happening is as they were phasing out the C8s, PFOA, PFOS, companies started bringing out replacement chemicals, things with a couple fewer carbons, things like C6s or C4s. And those chemicals started getting used in a lot of these same consumer materials. And those chemicals are now out in our environment, starting to be found in living things as well. And we have no idea the long-term health effects of these, of these new chemicals that are out. They're, they're essentially a, a cousin of C8 and these, these former toxic chemicals that we know are hazardous, but I imagine there's not enough time that's gone by to know if there's really anything, any adverse health effects. Well, you know, unfortunately, we are hearing that from the manufacturers. They, the, the, the line you will hear is, well, there's no evidence showing that they cause uh, human harm from these exposures. That doesn't mean the tests have been done and they've been found to be harmless. What that means is those studies haven't been done, or at least those studies haven't been made available to the rest of us yet. The, the uh, world is like a real live guinea pig right now. Exactly. And unfortunately, um, what we're seeing as it comes out is concerning. For example, Gen X, the DuPont material that was brought out to replace PFOA. Um, what the first cancer study that was done on Gen X ended up showing that the same three tumors that PFOA was shown to cause in rats, testicular, liver, and pancreatic, Gen X was found to be causing those same three tumors. So there's concern about what these replacement chemicals can do, particularly since they share a lot of the same chemical characteristics. Um, and there are a lot of folks that are saying, um, should we be simply waiting and letting the population be used as guinea pigs, or should we be acting now based on what we know, particularly from the PFOA work and the science panel, independent science panel work, we know enough to be taking steps to deal with this now. This, uh, I can't help but feel like there's parallels between these chemicals and flame retardants as far as, and where I'm going with that is, we have these chemicals, they're supposed to be helpful, and then over time we realize they're, they're harming us. And you have the chemical companies who have millions and billions and trillions of dollars behind it, and you know they kind of pick greed over doing the right thing and taking care of the environment and taking care of human beings. Um, you know, it's, and they just—they also put out tons of propaganda saying how how this is okay and there's no adverse effects when they actually know it's quite the opposite. And trying to fight against this, it's it's kind of come with both flame retardants and these these uh, PFOs, PFOAs, PFOS. It's almost on the state legislators to make change instead of uh, doing something on a national level. Yeah, and it's one of the things I, I try to explore more in the book, Exposure, is just 
um, how does this happen? You know, why, why are we in a situation like this where we suddenly realize there's been a massive exposure to a class of chemicals like this with very little uh, that's been done on the scientific side um, rather than telling the people who've been exposed it's their burden to, to prove that these things are causing harm. And a lot of that, frankly, um, is tied to just the way our legal system in this country is set up, where the people who are exposed are told they are the ones who have the burden to come forward and prove that they've been exposed to something and it's causing them harm. Now, when you think about that, uh, a chemical, for example, that example that causes cancer, um, you typically, in order to prove that this thing is linked with cancer, have to be studying tens of thousands of people to have sufficient results to confirm that link. And most people don't have the resources to go out and, and do those kinds of studies on their own, um, whereas the companies typically do. Um, so it's, it's, a very, it's a very difficult situation when the people who are exposed are told they're the ones who have the burden to do this. And that's why our situation in West Virginia, where we had these independent scientists go out and finally confirm these health effects. That was so unusual because we finally had the funds. We had $70 million from, from DuPont under that settlement that were used to do that blood sampling, to collect that medical information. Most communities don't have access to that kind of money in order to do studies like that. So we were able to use that money to actually do these studies, something that doesn't usually happen. Now, Again, you were, you were just talking about Parkersburg and that area. You're now doing stuff on a national level. What is kind of the scope and magnitude of, of what you're currently working on? Well, you know, as we have seen these, these new replacement chemicals come out into the market and we are finding more and more exposures to, to more and more of these PFAS chemicals, and we realize it's not just PFOA that's out there in our water. It's not just PFOA that's in our blood. It's this broader group of PFAS chemicals. And as we see that, we're and as we start hearing what I just mentioned, which is these the statements by the companies, well, there's no evidence that these cause any harm. I'm trying to, to address that problem and say, the companies that have been putting those chemicals out into our environment, into our blood, ought to be paying for whatever studies are needed to tell us what they'll do to us. Um, so the taxpayer shouldn't be paying for those. The state government shouldn't be paying for that. The, the water providers, the community groups that are exposed shouldn't be having to try to find the money to do these studies. Um, so I've brought a case in, in federal court in Ohio, and we have a, a, a local firefighter who's our lead plaintiff, where we are seeking to have a case brought on behalf of everyone in the country who has these chemicals in their blood. And we're not seeking money or damages at this point. It's simply to require those companies to pay for independent scientists to look at this broader group of chemicals and tell us, what will, what will this group of chemicals do to us? Take what we did with PFOA, one chemical in one community, expand that to a national scope, look at this nationwide on this broader group of chemicals and have the companies that are exposing us 
be the ones that are financially responsible for the science that's needed to tell us what it'll do to us. Seems like an amazing responsibility you're taking on. Um, it's something, unfortunately, um, that needs to needs to happen. You know what we saw happen um, in, in with the situation with PFOA. The only way the science got done, the only way the people got clean water, was going to court and and doing that through the legal system. If if that community had sat back and waited for US EPA to come in and set drinking water guidelines and take action, they'd still be drinking all of this today. So, um, um, you know, I, th I think it shows the, the, the power of our court system in order to go in and get this stuff done through the court system when it's not happening uh, otherwise. Is your hope with all this becoming more common knowledge now, you know, out there in, in the public, whether it's, it's through the uh, the Devil We Know documentary, uh, your book, the movie Dark Waters. You is is your hope that you're going to have uh, it's going to be easier to get some of this information that you're going to have the the backing of these these not these companies but the the government because now the general public is aware and they they want to do something about it. I, I can tell you, you know, I took my mother to see the movie. And, and obviously, I knew what, what I was getting into when I went in there. She did not. And she walked out of that movie a different person. She felt just disgusted and felt like she was taken advantage of. And just, she's all about, you know, let's, it's, she was instantly like, let's do something. Well, you know, that's it's the reason I, you know, supported doing the documentary, The Devil We Know, in the movie, Dark Waters, the book, was for that purpose, to get this information out and to, to stop <laughs> what, I, what I still see is the PR misleading spin that's still going on, telling people we don't know enough about these chemicals to take action to protect ourselves. Um, that once that information is out and people have access to the truth, to the facts, that they're gonna demand uh, that, that the proper steps be taken. And they're going to insist that steps, that we finally move forward and deal with this now. Um, particularly, you know, I'm hoping that people come out of the movie, you know, inspired to know this is still an ongoing fight. You know, the, I think the movie leaves you realizing there's still work to be done and this is something that um, everybody needs to, to help out on. There's a fightforeverchemicals.com campaign that's been announced with the movie as well that seeks to try to make information available through different community resource groups, citizen groups across the country that are dealing with these issues to try to help make sure all this information is equally available to people um, so that we know what is known um, and can actually move forward and not keep going back and, 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 and reinventing the wheel and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, pretending this didn't happen. You know, it, it, it's happened, um, it's happening, and there are ways and things we can do to, to stop it. I'm just curious, um, I'm trying to think how to say this. I think it's simply as, at what point or was there even a point in which you realized that this is this stuff isn't just a case, it's not just a job. This is 
a calling. This is something that I have to do. That this is, you know, if not me, then who? I have to take this burden and get this, get this message out there that there's a problem. You know, I think it was working with Mr. Tennant, and again, going back to his, you know, his his philosophy that if people just see the facts and if people can see the, the truth, the, if they look, if they sit down and look at, at this information, it's clear um, what's happening, what needs to be done. And I've sort of followed that view ever since, you know, meeting Mr. Tennant. Um, it's, it's shaped how I've dealt with, with this issue going forward the last couple decades. Is, I still believe if we can get this information out and people really understand what's happening, what's going on, people will do the right thing. And people will take steps and, and do the things that need to be done. And the more we can do to educate people and get the information out, uh, the better, you know, the better for all of us. But um, I, I, I really think you know whatever we can do to get that out through through the movie, through the book, through the documentary, through the community groups, whatever we need to do, I'm happy to keep doing that uh, in order to get the information out to folks. Uh, going back to, you know, that's, I think it's probably time now to actually talk about firefighting. You know, uh, being in this occupation and, and and knowing that we're already exposed to carcinogens at every fire. Uh, regardless of if we're wearing all of our PPE, we're still going to be exposed. You know, we have the diesel exhaust, uh, the shift work, which is a, a known carcinogen or probable carcinogen. Um, that's already scary enough. And then you throw in the fact that uh, this, this stuff is in our firefighting foam and uh, potentially in some of our, our firefighter gear, at least uh, the older um, versions, I guess 2012 and before. Um, and not to mention as well, um, the, uh, the again these chemicals that are just in our, the natural environment, whether it's the carpet or clothing or pans and everything else that will will run into an off gas in an actual fire. Uh, it's quite uh, it's quite scary. Um, but uh, do we have any idea of? the extent of firefighters, again, because we're, the, the normal human being is going to get exposed, but for us, we're getting, you know, uh, exposed to this stuff exponentially. Yeah, and in fact, um, you know, the more I was delving into the related chemicals, and particularly PFOS, which was used, you know, extensively for firefighting foam, the more aware I became of the potential, you know, for significant exposures among firefighters and emergency responders, um, that you know, I really started focusing in on those issues, and particularly with local firefighters who came to us and were raising concerns, you know, about the firefighting foam. You know, it wasn't. Um, it's only recently that really any kind of awareness of of the scope of that exposure is starting to emerge even though you know that's been known within the companies for quite some time you know that these chemicals were in firefighting foam they've been used in various types of um, fabric coatings and things as you mentioned you know historically at least um, and I wrote a letter after looking at all this to the federal um, agency for toxic substances and disease registry which is a bit of a mouthful but they're the federal agency that's supposed to do health studies 
uh, for exposures to hazardous chemicals. Back, I wrote a letter in 2017 trying to encourage the agency to look not only at exposure to PFAS chemicals in drinking water, but also among firefighters. Um, since then, ATSDR has announced a nationwide uh, study looking at drinking water exposures, but unfortunately has specifically carved out uh, the firefighter exposures. Um, and that's one of, the, one of the main reasons, you know, I wanted to make sure that a comprehensive, independent, scientific studies are done looking at these broader exposures, including firefighters, particularly with foams and, and potentially gear, um, you know, through this idea of having an independent panel uh, through this litigation we're pursuing right now. You know, if, if the agencies aren't going to do those studies, um, if the companies aren't going to voluntarily do those, you know, we, maybe through litigation we can get independent scientists to get enough money to do those types of studies. Um, you know, when, particularly if you're talking about cancer studies, you typically need a pretty, pretty large number of individuals, you know, to be able to do those studies. And they're expensive, you know, so getting the funding is, is a problem as well. But I'm trying to do whatever I can to at least raise awareness um, within the firefighting community that these exposures likely have occurred, at least in the past, with the foams and the, you know, potentially other sources as well. And let's at least try to get the studies done. You know, as, as you indicated, there's all, already a lot known about the potential risk of various carcinogens through firefighting activities. We also have a lot of information about the PFOS chemicals and what they do and the types of cancers they, they, they generate. But there hasn't been much done to date yet to look at the connection, if any, between the two, between PFOS and any of these cancers in the firefighting community. So I think that's the missing piece that really I'm hoping folks will start to focus on um, and at least try to fill in and see if there's a connection there. And if, if so, what can be done? Um, and luckily, in the meantime, we're seeing efforts being undertaken, at least at the state level, to require the phase-out of a lot of these um, foams that use these chemicals in the past. Um, I know there's legislation being discussed right now to try to do that, um, you know, on a broader scale as well. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's something I'm hoping to at least make sure people are aware of and the least we can start making sure the proper studies are underway to look at and see whether these connections exist, and if so, what can be done to, to, to make sure that those are taken care of. I'll be uh, interested in seeing what uh, Graham Beasley's study here says shortly. Yes. You know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a scary thought just knowing that uh, the gear that's supposed to protect us could actually be harming us. And I don't think, uh, from what I've learned, it's not the gear manufacturers. Um, they were kind of sold a false good of bills, or just like everybody else, you know, that there were no adverse effects. And then we find out later on, well, yeah, I guess there was. Um, so, you know, they were duped just like everybody else. Um, but that still doesn't change the extra exposures that, that we get. I mean, we already, we already get enough. The odds aren't good for us, and so when you just add all this stuff to that plate, it's like, all right, this is enough. <laughs> I've had enough. 
And, and hopefully, you know, if we can get this information out and get some of these studies done, we can at least start moving the ball forward to make sure that any of those exposures that might have been occurring are stopped or at least minimized going forward. Um, you know, and I think we're seeing that already. I think there is a growing awareness to try to move away from these chemicals, not only in foam, but in some of the fabric coatings in the, the various mix of chemicals that are used. And, you know, I think anything that can encourage, uh, you know, folks to move towards safer chemicals in those products is um, something we hope, hopefully can be encouraged. Is there, is there anything else kind of in the horizon or near future that uh, you're optimistic about, um, that you're working on, um, that, that kind of will change, uh, hopefully, how these chemicals are used, just for period uh, for everybody well you know it's been really remarkable to see the developments just within the last year I would say um, where even though these chemicals have been out there in our environment for decades um, and for some of us our entire lifetime um, as testing is finally starting of water supplies you know across the country and as people are starting to become aware of what products these have been used in there is an increasing awareness within the public as you indicated and the public is now demanding steps be taken um, so we're seeing legislation being proposed for the first time ever at the federal level to address firefighting foams for example to, to address how these chemicals are handled um, as far as what type of waste they should be, how should they be classified. Uh, we're seeing states move forward uh, to try to do that in the meantime. Uh, you know, the federal process moves very, very slowly. So there are a number of states that are moving forward to try to take steps on their own to do it now. Um, and you know, it's, it's remarkable to see how once that information gets out, once people start becoming aware and have access to this data, how quickly things can move and how quickly things can change. Perfect. Well, I appreciate your time. If, if you still have some time, I'd like to go over my 25 random questions for you right. real quick. I mean, uh, it's, it's only fair I get to do it to you, too. Before I even do that, though, I was curious. Seeing the movie, you've got a little cameo in there. How was that, being on a movie set and... and being part of that yeah it was a bit surreal to say the least um, you know but this the movie most of it was filmed here in Cincinnati um, and uh, a lot of it was in our offices and so I got the opportunity to consult and to to be there on set um, and you know it was a it was a terrific experience um, um, and I think the the, the 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 folks involved with the movie really wanted to to make it clear, particularly to the audiences, you know, that these were real people, this really happened, these, this community really exists, and these people really, really are there, which is, I think, one of, you know, one of the reasons they showed various cameos of the real people involved. Mm -hmm. I think it really kind of drives that home at the end of the film. Perfect. All right, now I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna let you choose your own fate. You have not seen these, even though they're in front of you. No. <laughs> Throw out a number for me. One through 25? Seven. All right. Worst job interview? Worst job interview was probably <laughs> when I was interviewing to be a meter reader in Dayton back when I was in, 
gosh, I guess it was the summer, one of the summers in college, um, and um, um, it just didn't go well. <laughs> nice. Where did you grow up in Dayton? Fairborn, right outside of Wright Pat Air Force okay. Base. Went to. Uh, we were actually the first graduating class of the new Fairborn High School. Uh, Fairborn Baker and Fairborn Park Hills had merged that year, so. Perfect. 1983. Nice. Just, uh, I mean, Fairborn touches the city I live in, so yep. I'm familiar with a lot of those places. Uh, how about another number? Two. Uh, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Technically, yes. <laughs> but I have, uh, probably not in the spirit of Christmas movies. <laughs> All right. How about another one? Fourteen. What's your favorite book? And don't say your own. That's that's not fair. <laughs> oh, gee, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite. I really don't. Okay. You don't have time probably to read a book because you're reading all these documents. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um. We'll do one more. All right. What are you thinking? Sure. What do you think? What number? Oh, what, not, what number? Uh, nine. Best advice from a teacher? Don't take anything at face value. And um, don't believe everything you read. I think that really was hammered home as well when I was in college, a new college where I went to school in Sarasota, Florida. Um, you know, just really strong advocate of critical analysis of, of everything you read. Perfect. All right, well, with that, I'll let you get back to work. Well, thank you. I was uh, enjoyed speaking with you. I appreciate it so much. Uh, Rob lot once again, uh, he's on Twitter. Check out the movie Dark Waters, also his book Exposure, and uh, also he's also uh, in that uh, The Devil We Know. He's got a few clips in there as well that are pretty pretty neat. So. Thanks again for just taking everything, putting this all on your shoulder, and just running with it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye.